Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Couric, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. Thank you so much for joining us for the Ocean House author series. Karen White is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of 34 books, including the Trad Street series, The Last Night in London, Dreams of Falling, The Night the Lights Went Out, Flight Patterns, The Sound of Glass, and A Long Time Gone. She is the co-author of The Lost Summers of Newport, All the Ways We Say Goodbye, The Glass Ocean, and The Forgotten Room with New York Times best-selling authors Beatrice Williams and Lauren Willig. She grew up in London but now lives with her husband near Atlanta, Georgia. Here's what Kirkus Reviews has to say about The House on Britannia. An exciting psychic mystery. White's second Royal Street book continues the tradition of haunted houses, evil ghosts, and fraught romances. Karen will be in conversation with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Deborah's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publisher Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's Top 15 list, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best of list in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma in early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects. She serves on multiple governing and advisory boards and holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Lake Erie College. Karen and Deborah will now discuss Karen's latest novel, The House in Britannia. And now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Karen White and Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Thank you, Lindsay, and thank you, Karen. I'm so happy to see you here, and I'm happy to see all of you. And I've heard from about 10 or 12 people today who love you beyond words, favorite author. But for one reason or another, they couldn't come. Summer is very strange that way. But it is actually a funny thing. Sometimes you get more people if it's rainy. Sometimes you get fewer people. It, the weather is an odd thing. So thank you. You have been here before with Team W. So we are very pleased to have you back on your own. So why don't you begin I really enjoyed the house on Britannia but why don't you begin with just sort of the the 10 cent tour of what the book is about oh boy okay so it is the second book in the series you do not need to start with the first one you know I, I do recommend it uh, but I do give you enough information so that you aren't totally lost of what's going on the main character is a 26 year old young woman uh, Nola Trenum who you may recognize uh, from my previous series set in Charleston. She is from Charleston. She has a, a graduate degree in historic preservation from the College of Charleston, just incidentally, like my own daughter, talk about cheap research. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and um, she has had some bumps. She started out at Tulane University, 
all excited, and she has had a difficult upbringing. She did not come into um, her current family's life until she was almost 14 years old. She had been raised by a, a mother in California with a, with a, a substance abuse uh, problem, um, and she did not know her father. So um, she sort of fell into, um, you know, after a bright start at Tulane, she, I mean, New Orleans, it is the city of excess. It is called the Big Easy for a reason. I myself am a graduate of Tulane University, but I was actually very nerdy when I was in college. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, so Nella, um, she decides she has, she wants to start restart her life um, after graduate school. After you know recovering, she's in recovery. She is a recovering alcoholic. So where do you want to start your new life as a recovering alcoholic? New Orleans, of course. <laughs> Because she's one of those stubborn people that doesn't want easy. She wants to prove to herself and her family that she can do this. And so she moves to New Orleans. First thing you do, first thing she does is she buys an old house because she loves restoring old houses. Of course, um, it's the only house she can afford. That's why it's only this side of the wrecking ball. You are familiar with the concept. And um, so she begins to restore it. But unfortunately, this house that she has purchased um, comes with a few hangers on, and not all of them are happy to have her there. And the only person she knows who can help her is sort of an old acquaintance of hers, but they have a lot of history, and she is a little loath to ask him for help. But she finds she has no choice when she realizes that her life and perhaps the lives of others might be in danger. So. so I have a question about how you create a series. Do you create kind of like um, a television series? Do you have sort of a Bible and a list of characters and a, a sketch of what each uh, book will be? Or do you just write a book and say, that's going to be a good one to go on with? Talk about that process. I wish I could say I was a planner. <laughs> People say, do you know what's going to happen in the next book? I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen on the next page. <laughs> I am just one of those stupid writers who just can't do it right. But that is the way I do it. And it is very like my everybody's favorite secondary character in this series is Jolene. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. She sounds like so. My my mother's from the Mississippi Delta, which is where Jolene is from, and so I have cousins from the Mississippi Delta, and they really talk like that. Okay. Like you need a translator if you go. Yes. They call it the most southern place on earth for a reason. And um, the way Jolene came about, like I didn't know I needed a best friend. I had no idea. And I was writing uh, in the first book, The Shop on Royal Street. I am literally writing, um, and there's a scene that ends in the kitchen of this house Nola has purchased, and her stepmother is visiting from Charleston, and Bo, this guy, is there in the kitchen, and all of a sudden we hear a woman scream and the sound of glass breaking. I have no idea what just happened. And I have to figure out what that is in the second chapter. In the second chapter, there's Jolene standing in the room. And I'm like, wow, okay, jo and she had a name? And because I'm hearing the song Jolene, Dolly Parton, I know she's got <laughs> flaming red hair and green eyes, and I know she's as southern as pecan pie. 
And um, and that is how Jillian came about. So did I create that character? I think I did, but she, I think she just... You channeled her. I, I think channeled you channeled her. her. Yes. So I write in the same way, and I have the same experience, and it's kind of extraordinary. And let's tie that in to this concept of spirits or ghosts or entities or channeling a voice because there are these moments in writing where all of a sudden there's Jolene and you, you think, son of a gun, where did she come from? Mm -hmm. So what is your fascination with spirits and ghost stories? Because you do it in a very delightful way. Well, thank you. Um, so, true story. My um, my father was born in 1932 in Macomb, Mississippi. I mean, height of, height of the Depression. There were days when he did not have food to eat. And um, he, you know, managed to be very successful despite this, this upbringing. But we're talking about the deep South. I mean, lots of superstitions. Um, they were very deeply religious, Southern Baptists. Um, and he, when I would go visit my grandmother, you know, my dad would tell me stories about his grandparents. Like everybody talked about the dead. Like, yeah, I was you know putting you know hanging at the the wash on the line, and you know my my mother came to say hello or wanted to tell. And it was just part of it was you know. So I didn't think it was weird that people spoke to dead people. And uh, I, and my dad. Um, so my dad was a huge reader of nonfiction. And I guess my mother was not a reader, so as a child, like, I did not grow up with, with books. You know, it wasn't until third grade when I went to my first library and was handed the secret of the old clock that I understood what libraries and books were all about. Um, before that, I was just reading, you know, Can This Marriage Be Saved in My Mother's li um, Lady's Home Journal. Keeping the, you know, the, the, the novel excerpt. I discovered Victoria Holt. Oh, my gosh, right? Um, but my father, he would it was like, oh, so you're supposed to read your children before bed. So, you know, it would be Winston Churchill's memoirs or um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's, you know, the Gulag Archipelago or things like that. And also, stranger than fiction, true ghost stories. Before bed. <laughs> I don't think I slept in my own room until I went to college. And that's only because, or in my own bed, um, because my roommate was like, Karen, your, your bed is across the, across the room. Just um, because I, he would just scare me so much, you know, and, um, but I grew up with, like, this is, this is real, this is a real thing, you know, um, and um, have I ever seen a ghost? I have not. My son has three times, and I was with him each time, and he hates this about himself, and then I have also been approached by psychics who say, you're psychic, aren't you? And I'm like, no. And they're like, yeah, you are. You just, you won't accept that you are because you're afraid. And I'm like, mm -hmm. hell yes. <laughs> so um, I, it's just always, it's always there. You know, the fascination with, with, with um, old graveyards, mm -hmm. where I get a lot of my names for my characters. Mm -hmm. Old graveyards, yes. things like that. I think it's just part of who I am. This, my mother called me morbid. I'm not going to say she's wrong, um, but I, by, I, I embrace it in these in the series. Have you ever read Laura Lynn Jackson? Have any of you read Laura Lynn Jackson? She's written a book called Signs and another one called I don't know what. So she's she's on Long Island, and she has been psychic since she was a child, and she resisted, and finally she surrendered, and she's really quite well known. She works primarily with families who've lost children. And 
she works with them to realize that their children really are okay. And it, she, she's really beautiful. Everything about her is beautiful. There's not a scary thing about her. So I'm giving a shout out to okay, Laurel and Jackson. You should signs. read hers. One is called Signs, okay. and the other one I can't recall. She has two books. So I want to talk a little bit about culture and life. So you have southern roots, but southern doesn't necessarily equal southern. My father's family was from Tennessee, which probably bears no relationship to Mississippi or you know, maybe a few touch points. But then you grew up in England, and I know that that goes into your worldview. And talk about that. So it, it's really interesting, and I, I really consider myself very, very fortunate to have had this, this dichotomy of a, of a raising, you know. Um, we did live, you know, I lived in Venezuela, we lived in the Netherlands, we lived in London for seven years, and, you know, across, in the, it, in, and one of our neighbors in where I lived in London was, um, um, in the penthouse was Mick Jagger, and Joan Collins lived, you know, across the way. I mean, it was like a very interesting whatever and, and and across the street from our beautiful building um where my book the Night, last night in london is set in this building in the war during world war ii and now um there's a plaque saying you know, literally i could see this this building from my from my um living room window was you know in uh, on the spot um uh, charles dickens was a house where charles dickens lived while writing david copperfield so you know wow. th this this sense of history and and you know, on the way down the high street, there was a cemetery where Emma Thompson, not Emma Thompson, Emma Hamilton was buried. And I don't know if you've ever seen the old movie Horatio Hornblower about Lord Nelson and his mistress, Emma Hamilton. Um, you know, it's this amazing love affair. And you know, he was the hero of the Battle of Trafalgar, you know, Trafalgar Square, he's on the top, and her grave is right. I mean, just this sense of history. Um, and, and I felt very fortunate to have lived there and to have had all these experiences and we were able to travel because we were over there. Um, but my happiest memories of growing up is every summer we would spend two to three weeks at my grandmother's house in Indianola, Mississippi. Indianola, Mississippi literally is a one-stop sign town. Although now it's the home of the Blues Museum because that's also where B.B. King was born. Mm. And now they have the Blues Museum there. So that kind of put it... I knew I'd heard that name. And yeah, it's, yeah. And that, that's why. That's why. You would have never heard. I mean, no. it is literally in the middle of nowhere. But there's something special. And I realized because I live such a nomadic life. And I was also unfortunately raised with three brothers instead of sisters. And all I ever wanted was a sister. And my mother, there were five girls in her family. Oh, wow. And I remember, you know, visiting my, my grandmother's, I mean, the house where my mother was raised with her sisters and one brother, so there were six children, uh, one bathroom, and, um, but it was the most magical experience of my life with my grandmother because, you know, my mother grew up, you know, during the 50s, so like all of their beautiful, like, hoop-skirted dresses that they wear to all the parties and everything, my grandmother kept in these trunks and, you know, we would play dress up and... But my fondest memories are sitting around my grandmother's kitchen table in her little tiny kitchen with my mom, all of my aunts, my grandmother, her sister, all of our female relatives around, you know, the old laminate kitchen tables with the big thick metal thing going around. Yes. And I would kind of just like huddle underneath so they'd forget about me. And I would just hear them doing their southern girl talk. 
And those are the voices I hear mm -hmm. when I create my Southern women, not just in this series, but in all of my books, because I write about what I know, and that is the South, and that is where my family is from, and those are where all my female, I have a million, a million um, female cousins who all live in the South, and we had a wonderful family reunion last year in Arkansas, you know, and I mean, I could have just sat there and recorded everything and just, you know, used it for, you know, fodder for the next books because that is, that is my reference point. So I think it makes a difference that it was your mother's family that you were going back to because my father, as I said, was from the South. And we would go, but it wasn't that clutch of women mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. It was very odd and very different. Yeah. And my dad's family, too, I mean. Yeah. It was. It wasn't the same. I mean, I would, you know, obligation visit them. Yeah. But my happy time was at my grandmother's. I get that. I recently did a a book event in Nashville, and my father's family was from Dixon, Tennessee, and they had left that region a hundred years before to move to Western Kentucky. But I went back there, and the, the interesting thing about that, it's one thing, it's very profound to go to this place in your own life, but to go to a place where your family was, yes. but then not for so long, it was very, right. felt a little haunted, I have to say. I agree, and when I yeah. go, I, you know, um, I go to the drugstore, and, you know, um, and they would still have, like, the little soda fountain thing. And, and they'd be like, oh, you're Catherine Ann's daughter. I'm like, yes, I am. And they give me a free Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you told me earlier your favorite book is Last Night in, in London. In London. Mm -hmm. Why is that your favorite book? So I was, you know, it just kind of came all together. There are the two main characters are characters that are from other books and so this is sort of their you know so you get to know a little bit more about them um one is from all the ways we say goodbye precious dubose mm -hmm. you know that was one of the collaborations that i did with beatrice and lauren and then the um maddie warner is from falling home and after the rain and everybody had been asking me you know oh what happens to maddie and i'm like because i always wanted to write a book about the wonderful building I lived in for seven years in London. Because I remember the day we moved in, the porter said, the reason why in your flat you have some leaded glass windows and some plain glass is because during the blitz, nearby bombs shattered those windows and they had to replace them and they couldn't replace them with leaded glass and they did plain glass. And I remember, and you know, and, and I moved there right before seventh grade. So I was 12. I just remember how profound what he said was because when I started studying up on the Blitz, like nightly bombings for nine months where these people, I mean, because this was on Regent's Park, so it is in the West End, you know, and um, it's not where the bombing started, but it's where the bombing, because, you know, the British wouldn't give up, so they're like, okay, we're just going to bomb everything else, and they did, and um, I just, it was a piece of history I could hold in my hand living in that building you know, touching the doors, touching, you know, seeing everything. And I, my father was a huge history buff, you know, and that is, it brought history to life for me. And I always wanted to write a book set in that building. Mm -hmm. And that is why I thought, okay, I'm going to get Precious DuBose, and I'm going to tell the rest of the story of Maddie's story, and I'm going to build them together, and I'm going to set them in this beautiful building in London where I lived that wonderful seven years. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI.
And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. So talk to us about your writing journey. How and when did you start? Um, kicking and screaming. I never wanted to be a writer. Ever. Ever. It's like the most frustrating, hard thing ever. But I loved books. I loved stories. I loved, and the reason why I hated to write is because back in the day, and does everybody here know what a typewriter is? <laughs> so that, oh, Ben's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, back in the day, you know, when you were given, you know, I remember my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Anderson, would say, okay, we have an hour in class, I want you to write a five-page mystery story, and I'd be, like, so excited, because, like, oh, yeah, the story, oh, yes, I can't wait, you know, the story would just already be writing itself in my head, and then I'd start writing, because everything was handwritten, and by the end of the fifth page, I was so frustrated because I'd forgotten what these great ideas were because I couldn't write fast enough, and I'd always get an A in content and an F in penmanship. <laughs> but Mrs. Anderson would always say, you should be a writer, you are so creative, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, who, what kind of an idiot would want to be a writer? It is so hard and frustrating. Why? And then eventually I learned how to type. And, you know, my mother was a piano major in college, so I was I played piano my whole life. You know, I have good hand-eye coordination, not with tennis. I'm a terrible tennis player. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I picked up typing very, very quickly and easily because we had to take typing on manual typewriters, right, in 10th grade. I did it. Yeah, but, but, but that didn't, I, I'd already learned to hate writing. Um, but I was always grateful because when I went to business school at Tulane, I would always, you know, for the big projects, I would always pair up with the finance and accounting majors because then I would write up, I would be the person, you know, making the, the report really pretty and I would just put their numbers in and everything and so I did graduate with honors. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, so that, that just wasn't a thing. I just, you know, but I loved books. Since I got, you know, started age nine, Secret of the Old Clock, love stories. And then I read Diana Gabaldon's Outlander wow. series. Oh. And I oh. had the worst book hangover. I could not pick up another book to read. And you're like, yeah. you probably have stacks of books. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I mean, I was so obsessed with those books. I just, I, I couldn't get them out of my head. Right. And I couldn't pick up another book. And I just remembered like the ghost of Mrs. Anderson in my ear saying, you should be a writer. I was like, well, if I don't tell anybody, you know, it doesn't count. And I, I'm not going to write a book. I'm just going to, you know, I'll probably, I'm just writing a few pages just to get it out of my system, and then I'll find a book to read, right? You know, I started, I had a paragraph, then I had a page, then I had a chapter, then I had a whole book. And by, at this point, I had joined the CompuServe Writers Forum because in one of the forewords to one of Diana's books, she had mentioned that she was one of the moderators on this forum. I joined the forum. She mentioned that she was going to be a judge in a writing contest where if you got to the semifinal round, she would give you a written critique. And I was like, it's 35 bucks, right? I'm not going to win, but you know. <laughs> So not only did I get a lovely critique from Diana, I also ended up winning the contest, and the finalist judge was a New York literary agent, and she was my first agent and sold my first few books. I love that story. You know, and I have a similar story about declaring versus not declaring yourself. And I bet some of you in this room are writers, and you may not have declared yourself. My turning point, I'd been writing secretly a long time. I was in writing groups, and you know, I was gaining confidence, but this particular year, I thought, I'm just going to tell my friends I'm writing a novel. And my husband, who's very discreet, he was like, I really wouldn't do that if I were you. 
I think he was worried that, you know, it might not go well. I, but I said, you know what? I really understand. I'm only telling my friends. I'm not taking an announcement in the New York Times. But, and if I have to say at some point when they say, hey, how's that book going? If I have to say, I didn't finish, it's OK. But for me, it was that flag in the sand that was extremely important. So keep that in mind if you're a writer. But now, I want to go back to the house on Pretania. Why did you pick that street? Was there a house you had in mind? So back in 2005, I had made sort of a, again, it was one of those moments. I had, you know, every once in a while, you know, you want, like you, you've had many um, um, reinventions of yourself, right? Have. And I think that's important for our personal growth, especially as women. You know, you don't want to be defined by just one thing, you know, and um, and it's fine if you do, but I just was, you know, never happy, you know, just doing the one thing. And I had been growing my Southern women's fiction audience, right? Everything was great. And then I thought, when you were a kid, Karen, remember how much you enjoyed reading series? You know, Nancy Drew, and then Little House in the Big Woods, and then as I got older, more series, and Diana Gabaldon. And I'm like, right. I'm like, what would it be like to write a series? And then, of course, the next question was, oh, you'd have to come up with a character and like a, you know, some kind of a hook that could really carry a series. January 2005, I'm standing in my shower, and the character of Melanie Middleton jumps into my head. And I'm like, who the heck are you? I knew immediately, though, she was OCD. I knew she loved donuts. Yeah, donuts. I knew she was a realtor specializing in old houses, but she hated old houses because they always came with an unhappy ghost, and she could speak, communicate with the dead. And so that's why she would sing ABBA and do this so that they wouldn't bother her. I love the ABBA. I know. And I'm like, dear God, who is this person? I'm like, but you know what? She could carry a series. Yeah. So uh, for spring break in April that year, I brought my family um, to New Orleans because I got a college there, but it, it, that was in the mumble mumble, the 80s. <laughs> and um, so it had changed a bit. You know, I wanted to make sure, and, and I saw two of my dearest friends are from there, and they still lived in the area, so we all met, and we had a great time, brought my husband, and, and I started writing the book. It was, you know, wonderful. We did all the tours and everything. I'm like, great, have it started writing. And then what happened in August of 2005? Katrina. Katrina. Yeah. Oh, was that 05? And you, yes. Oh, yes. And the title of that first book was The House of Britannia. Because Britannia is such a, I mean, there's a million gorgeous houses on that street, including the one that belonged to um, Anne Rice and then Nicholas Gage. Um, and that is sort of what I was thinking of would be, you know, the, the beautiful house on the cover and everything, and it's actually on the cover of this house. Um, but when Katrina happened, I knew that the series that I had in my head, Katrina couldn't be a backstory. Katrina was too big. And I, I eventually, you know, the beach trees is all about surviving storms. It's about pre-Camille and post-Katrina, New Orleans and Biloxi, Mississippi. But I knew for the series, it, you know, it was, Katrina was too big of a character. So I was like, okay, what's another great southern city with lots of great, you know, history and architecture and of course, you know, ghosts. And, and, and that's how I came up with Charleston. And I wrote the Trad Street series. And then when it was time to do this spinoff, I'm like, of course, it's going to be New Orleans. And the first book wasn't called The House in Britannia. I'm not really sure why. Um, but the second book is. So that, that is how that came about. It's 
been how many years? Almost 20 years in the making. <laughs> wow. For this, for this title to come about. So you said when the first series was finished, how did you know it was finished? How did you know you were coming to that point where you were going to wrap it up? Well, I knew I had messed with these their lives for so long. And the characters were like, you know, Karen, can you just leave us alone <laughs> so we can live our happily ever afters? And because, you know, Melanie, when we first meet her in the house on Trad Street, she's like 40 years old, you know? And then so much happens. So then she's earned it. She has earned her peace, right? Yeah. And there was this character of Nola Trenum. You know, we first meet her. She's almost 14. And I, she was a surprise character. She shows up on the doorstep one day. And I didn't think she would be such a major second character, secondary character, but she just blossoms. And the relationship she ends up having with Melanie, that lovely mother-daughter relationship, was so unexpected and so wonderful. And I got so much love. <laughs> that happens all the time, the GPS. Um, but it was an right. unexpected, lovely, lovely relationship that I didn't see coming. And so Nola became a, a main character. Uh, fans were saying, we need more of Nola. Um, so when I was getting to the end of the series and my editor said, would you consider doing a spin-off?" I knew immediately that yes, it was going to be set in New Orleans and that the leading character would be Nola. And because Nola is only 26, I can torture her for years. <laughs> now, having been on a soap opera, <laughs> oh, no. that, that is one of the tenets of soap operas. You know, you have these characters who are with you forever. But they endure the, the ups and downs of life. And I played her sister. My character was called Silver Cane, very realistic name. And I appeared on a Greyhound bus one day. And we went off to the races from there. Did you ever watch soap operas? I, well, I, when I was in college, because remember, yeah. I lived in London. We didn't yeah. have them. We had Coronation Street. Right. So my um, roommate was all my kids, all my kids, that's what they call mm -hmm. all my kids, and uh, Guiding Light. And so they're, they're stories, right? Absolutely. I watch them as well, you know. And so when I would come home for lunch or something, they, they would always schedule their classes around their soaps. So I was able to get into some of the storylines, you know, the two year, my junior and senior year when I lived with them. Absolutely. Well, that was the era I was on. And I know who watched it because all I had to do was walk through an airport. And you absolutely, people were like, and they scream. It was crazy. So now I want to go back to this idea of, Gritlet, Southern women's fiction. What distinguishes it? I, I mean, so they have an accent, and so they eat a particular diet. But what? That's not it. What distinguishes it? And, and it's interesting. And I, again, I, I go back to my raising. So I was raised not in the South. I didn't live in the South until I married my Yankee husband and moved there 31 years ago to mm -hmm. Georgia. But all my family, you know, that that is my reference. So I had the advantage of being included in the Southern lifestyle, which is all about neighbors bringing your tomatoes and, you know, casserole, and, and just, it was, it was your, the community, like going downtown and like your Catherine Ann's girl, you know, have the mm -hmm. call, you know, that sort of like everybody is your neighbor and you say hello and you nod and you, you care, you, you, visit the sick, you, you know, all of that, it, the, the sense of community um, and how everybody, you know, they know your grandparents or they knew your grandparents and your extended family and so then you're part of their extended family, you know, wherever you are. Um, and 
you know, and, and so I think I was very fortunate, and the reason why I can write, the same reason why I love to write about sisters. I didn't have a sister, mm -hmm. but I studied it my whole life. Same like Southern communities, I studied it my whole life, so I was able to look at it sort of objectively to be able to write about it. Like, I sometimes wonder if I had, if I, if I were one of my cousins, uh, you know, where all my cousins have sisters, I'm the only one without a sister. Um, you know, but when I see them interacting, and you know, they all stayed in Mississippi. You know, I just wonder if I'd be able to write what I write because I wouldn't notice it as being something different or separate. You know, I would agree. I, I'm an only child, so I feel like I've lived my life as an observer. You know, you go to other families, and everything they do is different, and it's a little bit odd. And their tuna fish sandwich isn't at all like your mother's tuna fish sandwich, or whatever it is. So. It gives you that ability to see what's going on. And I've moved a lot. And I do think sometimes people who are deeply entrenched in it can't see the forest for, for the trees. But what makes it Southern lit, grit lit, a book, what, what makes it that? Well, the setting especially. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, you know, for those of you, I mean, like, I was staying with Beatrice Williams in Lyme, Connecticut. She's like, oh, this humidity. And I'm just like. <laughs> like I went and grabbed the sweater, I was so cold. <laughs> and it, it, there is something about the climate in the South that lends itself to the way people move and speak. There's a reason because it's so freaking hot, <laughs> and and just so. I mean, I know it gets hot here. I I know this, but it is different. And, and I think, and it's also, you know, we have a very tragic history. You know, there's tragic, there's tragedy everywhere. But, you know, there's just something, you know, our history and our crazy people, like we're not, we're not ashamed of our crazy people. We put them on the front porch and we, you know. Um, and, and it is that, it is that, 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 that Southern pride is like, yes, you know, we're crazy, but we're proud of it. Kind of, you know, you have to admire it, and um, so I think setting is a big thing, and and how you're raised, and how you respect your mama, and how you your manners are important. You know, and how you how you eat, and what you serve, and how you you know when when you um, are entertained at somebody's house, you better have that thank you note in the mail the next morning, and you know it's all about you know just politeness and at least my mother's and my father's family were that way I mean it's different now especially in the cities you know but um, you know in, in the small towns where my mother was from and my father was from it's like you really adhere to that you know there you're very conscious about um, politeness and politeness it's it's not about being stuck up it's about showing respect for other people you know the way and um, my just very quickly, my dad, you know, again, very poor upbringing, was very successful in life, and he was an executive with Exxon, and he worked in, at headquarters in Manhattan, and he remembers, you know, and he would be sent all over the world to do uh, stuff for Exxon. He was he was like the the um, I can't remember what his what his title was, but he would be the one like to be sent to Kuwait, like for the foreign oil shipments and and all this kind of stuff, and and he would be in Houston a lot. Um, and he said he remembers once he was he was sent to the small town in Texas, and he's in the back of a limo, right? And they're driving him to wherever he needs to go, and um, this man on the sidewalk, you know, looks into the limo and like tips his hat, and that's how my father had been raised. 
And my father said he was so ashamed because his first thought was, who does this person think he is? Because you know, he'd been living in you know, the Northeast yeah. North uh -huh. for a while. Who does this so-and-so think he is? You know, he doesn't know. And then it hit him. He's like, oh, but that's how I was raised. That's, you, you say hello to people whether you know them or not. You nod. You, you, you acknowledge their, their presence in your, in your world, you know. And I will never forget that story because it was, it was just very much who my dad was, you know, mm -hmm. and, and how he never really forgot his roots. And, you know, and every once in a while he would have to be reminded of it. That's I love that. Yeah, I think that is a wonderful definition. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. So, process for you. Do you, what, what is your process for writing? A book. You told me you're going to go home and clear the deck and spend some time. And what does that look like for you? So I love sitting outside. I have. I've become a bit of a bird lady. Mm. <laughs> a little embarrassing. Like just had, like Sydney and, and Beatrice this morning couldn't wait to get away from the Beatrice from the breakfast table because I'm like, look, because I have like a cam, uh, uh, a live cam on my bird. <laughs> like look, oh my gosh, look at that. Outside. I'm yeah. very, you know, we have a beautiful backyard and, you know, this little waterfall. And we've got like a green area behind us and it's, it's lovely. So I love sitting outside. Um, so, you know, being out there is creatively inspiring. I start with my main character, her internal and external conflict, and setting because setting to me is a main character. And once I start with that, I just, I just start writing. And then the secondary characters kind of, you know, jump on board, and 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 then I start like, okay, so what happens? At, like, how can I mess up their world? How can I make their lives even harder? And then I just, there you go. And this process for you takes. It take forever. I yeah. Mean, unfortunate. So right now I have a book due December fifteenth, and I'm on page seventy. Ooh. Um, it's okay because I am going to. I'm just. I'm going to tell my brothers they have to handle stuff because I've been handling stuff for five years and I need a break. And because um, I have to. I mean, it's like I'm. A, I am a writer. I. You know that that is who I am. It's it 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 doesn't define me, but it's a big part of who I am. And just life has pulled me away from that. And I feel like like a, a mother separated from her child. You know. I do. And, and, and um, considering how I, you know, was really dragged into this thing, kicking and screaming, it's a bit of a surprise, but, but I miss it. I miss, I miss it. And it's, um, because writing, as you know, it's not just time, right? It's, it's, it's brain space. I, I am a writer who really didn't get going till I had an empty nest. Because I did feel when that youngest child was grown and flown, I had been writing before that, but not in any committed way. And I felt, I always say, I felt like I got the real estate in my brain back. Mm -hmm. Like there was just this clearing. Mm -hmm. And I, I need that cone of silence. Because you are kind of working things out and solving problems. And it's very, I always worked when I was raising children. 
but the kind of work where you can you know, be on the phone and stir the pot and answer the question and all those things going on at the same time. Women are brilliant at that. We can truly multitask and keep it all organized in there. But I'm always amazed. You, you raised children at the same time that you were writing. I think it's really impressive. Well, you know, and, and again, and I, it was easier then because there was a schedule. There's something about a schedule. Yes, it's cr writing is creative, and I have discovered that my best time for writing, first thing in the morning, mm -hmm. I, you know, go out into the porch with my coffee and I start writing. And I'll try to write until 1 o'clock uninterrupted. You know, obviously I have to you know, go to the bathroom, get my fourth cup of coffee, you know, feed the dog, feed my birds, um, you know, those breaks. But I try to do that because that, you know, and then my workout, everything else has to wait till later. Um, so I have discovered that. But it was easier when the kids were home because I knew that I had from 8 a.m. to 2 o'clock p.m. to write. And then, you know, um, my husband traveled all the time, so, you know, I'd be the one that would pick them up from school, take them to activities and all that kind of thing. And I wrote many of my earlier books in my SUV while, you know, I'm writing or, you know, whatever. Because that's all, you know, I didn't know that, that there would be a time when I would have that, you know. Mm -hmm. But as long as I knew that I would have until 2 o'clock. And then I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to get so much more writing done when my kids flew. Uh -huh. Well, the thing, then I inherited my parents, which was 10 times harder because there's no schedule there. You know, it is like you were called to the ER, like, out of the blue, you know, in the middle right. of the day, and you're like, okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's been kind of like so much harder. And so I'm getting ready to reclaim that. And I'm going to be selfish about it. I, I have to be because I'm just like... So I snap, I have a crazy house full of way too many people and way too many dogs. And I was wanting to get back to writing. And I snapped at my mother yesterday. And she said, well, you know, Deborah, writing should be pleasant for you. Oh. Oh. Is she in the hospital? How hard did you strangle her? <laughs> I think we're at a good moment to open it for questions. I know you all have questions for Karen. Yes, anything, anything. I'll even show you pictures of my dog if you ask me. All right, Jan. Oh, hold on. Take the mic because you're on the radio. Oh, help. <laughs> that has been a really fun aspect. This summer we have this radio tie-in, and I'm starting to hear from people who are saying, oh, I listen to it on the weekends. So you can do that. I want to know which part you wrote in the collaborations with Beatrice and Lauren, who I also know, by the way. Okay. okay. So um, for any of you who have been to any of our events, you know that, that um, we took a blood oath um, <laughs> to never divulge. We're, we're not allowed to divulge. I, yes, know? they've never told me. Yeah, and our editor doesn't can't get it right either, has no idea when she uh, turns in the revisions, who's going to be returning the revisions for which part. These will be in their papers. When each yes. of them dies and the papers go to whatever library posthumously, you will know uh, there'll be the drill down on who wrote what. But doesn't it always have a lot to do with red wine and torches <laughs> and, and then you decide which? Pretty much. Well, and it's well, funny because I like to say the characters choose us because when Lauren Beatrice and I write a book together, we do get together in the beginning, you know, you know, some horrible place like, you know, the Ocean House or something like oh, that, yeah. where it's work, 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 work. <laughs> and, uh, um, 
uh, you know, and then we, we plot together. So it's funny, we plot the book together, so we own the story together, we create the characters together. So by the end of it, you know, we have all these characters and we've decided, you know, which characters will be our point of view characters. And then we let the characters kind of, and we always, we, we try to write against type. Mostly to mess with you, but also, um, you know, because we, you know, it's a sort of like, do step out of our comfort zones, I guess, you know, do something a little different. But you um, don't divide, you, you just write one character. That is correct, that is I correct. Mean, you don't, you don't <laughs> the first half. No, no, I think that, that, would, that would drive us crazy. Um, but it's really, in some of our books, you know, um, we have, uh, like in the first few books. Forgotten Room. Yes, each character was in their own time period, so they never interacted. But then in subsequent books, we had, and that was like the first time we did that, I think it was on the Glass Ocean, oh, and we had two different characters talking to each other. Right. You know, that was like very, like, like oh, this is, this is so exciting. And do you round robin it? Like someone writes a chapter, sends it, and yes. then it's yes. sent. And yeah. That way, so if we want to change something, we're like, okay, I've decided that it works better to do this. And we just send a text, and everybody's like, okay, we're aware. We'll make the changes. It's just it's wonderful. It right. really is a collaboration. It's not like, oh, no, that's not going to work. It's all, okay, great. No, that's fabulous. So I have a follow-up question to that before you guys all ask another question. How do you fit it in? I mean, if time is this crazy, precious commodity that we all have, not enough of, how do you fit that in? So this is like our our guilty pleasure. It's what we call productive procrastination. Mm -hmm. You know, because when you're working, do you ever like get stuck where you're like, you just can't see it and you mm -hmm. just can't look at it anymore? And then, oh, let me look, work on this project because it just right. landed in my inbox and it's sort of sorbet between the two main courses, right? So rather than just scrolling on social media, you do that. Exactly. Yeah. It's productive <laughs> it, Much more productive. And it's just, it, it's like such a refresher, like, okay, so maybe I don't suck, you know, because I think I can do this, you know, and it just, it sort of affirms your ability to write a book, you know, and then you, you move on and then you get back to your work and you're like, oh, this didn't suck, this is, this is doable, you know. So are you, are you working on another one with them? We just finished one, actually, we're working on the revisions now, um, that will be due sometime in October, I guess, but they're very light, they're mm -hmm. very light. And that book will be out in September of 2024. And as Beatrice might have mentioned to you, we are not allowed to say the title. All we can say is that it will be set in Scotland. Oh, yes, yes, Outlander. That's a title. There will be kilts. There will be sheep. I like that. We have a working title. Don't tell us. We're not, because I'm not allowed to. Okay. I like it. Alrighty, another question from the audience. Hi, I am a writer, and uh, one of the things that I struggle with and that I admire about your writing is your world building. Mm -hmm. It's like once you introduce something, it sticks with it, and uh, sometimes I have issues with that. So how do you keep that world that you're inventing all by yourself, mm -hmm. like how do you keep those in line, mm -hmm. so to speak? I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly you mean like for my series yes that, okay. yes it's like how do you keep things in order right. when you've got <laughs> right so it's a lot this whole harder. world going on that you're it's in your own head yeah so. it is a lot harder um and that's why i try to use places that i'm very familiar with so the apartment that that jolene and nola live in 
is actually the exact same apartment I lived in in college. <laughs> so you know, so that so it's very easy to recreate it in my mind space, um, and because I am familiar with the city of New Orleans, and then and then I did cheat. So I hired a Gen Zer to read the entire series, both series, and then to do a Bible for me, so that if I can't remember what somebody's where they went to college, what uh, car they drive, what the address is, um, what their mother's name is, things like that that you forget when you've written however many books, um, just to sort of... That's very clever. I love that answer because you do forget that where they went to college and all that yes. stuff, mother's name. Somebody will notice. But I too, I use real place, real houses, real towns, so that, you know, if I have that house in my mind and the bathroom's that way, the bathroom is always, always that there. way, yeah. mm -hmm. as, at the most mundane level. Sharon. You know, because of that question that um, I thought brought me to mind, uh, the artificial intelligence, have either of you ever, you know, logged into that to, like, go back to in time and find out? what colors or what cars. I mean, people are saying that that's such a... Um, I haven't even thought about that. I mean, I mean it's, I it's a... It's just, it's such a new thing for me that I have not... I still prefer to, you know, like when I was writing The Last Night in London and I wanted to see pictures of the Blitz. Mm -hmm. um, there were books about that, but also like YouTube, there are videos of like real live newscast of actual, you know, things happening. So I haven't thought about, do you, have you used I have not. And my latest book, Reef Road, is um, taken from a very dark incident in my family. My mother's best friend was murdered when my mother was 12. And when I started the research, which I ended up fictionalizing, I was stunned by how much material there was on the internet. And I was wondering, who are the gremlins who upload? Um, the murder happened in 1948 Pittsburgh. And there were just all these newspaper articles from 48 really to 53, uh, just dozens of them. And I hadn't really expected that, but they're there. Right. Uh, I think you mentioned so, that in your forward or your Yeah, somewhere. So I haven't turned to AI. I'm a little nervous about it. But I did a really interesting conference uh, in Stanford, Connecticut. And it's, um, it's called CrimeCon, C-O-N-N, because it's in Connecticut. And one of the panels was people who were very knowledgeable in AI. And what these authors were saying was they had each said, you know, write a novel or write an essay or whatever along the lines of using their own name. And they felt it was very flawed still at this point. They did not, I mean, not to say it will forever be so. I don't know. It, I mean, it's all very it's complex. It's all new, but I was just curious yes. if that would yeah. be a good place to go I, back to. So does anybody speak French here? There's a funny meme going around on social media, and I don't know if I can say it on the radio. but. Chat GPT, when you say it in France, French, it's chat GPT, which basically means you're saying cat, I farted. <laughs> oh. 
So they said people, when they're talking on the news and they're saying this, they say that over and over in France. I thought, well, that's hilarious. Wow. Is that from AI or what? Chat GPT is the name of this thing, this okay. AI. Yeah. You know, it was some 12 year old boy that came up with that name, right? Yeah, probably. Probably. Okay, we have time for one more question. Yes. Hi, another writer as well. I was wondering, do you feel possessive about your characters and your stories when the editors get their hands on it? Um, you know what, my I've had a really I've had the same editor since two thousand and three, and she's very hands off. You know, my characters are my characters, and she respects that, and I respect that. Um, um, so yeah, she's never ever you know. Her, her editing is always about continuity, about, you know, making something, you know, sometimes in my head, you know, like I go from point A to point C, and in my head, I clearly see the B, you know, but she does not. And she's always right. And so then those are the things she points out. But as far as characters, my, I've never had her question character motivation or anything like that. My characters are very real to me, and I think they act like real people. Um, not like people we know or myself. They're just, they are people, you could see them acting the way they act. So, yeah. So that has never been a problem. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of an edit, uh, a really great edit, which is on along a similar line to what you're talking about. You go from A to C, but you see the B. Uh, my agent once told me, you never want to take your reader out of the book and force them to look it up. And I, I had a case of a character in, in, um, who was unconscious for a certain number of days. And I had looked it up, and you can be unconscious for a certain whatever the number of days and not have water and not have this. But she said, yeah, but it's just, it's going to bother somebody. And you don't want to send them out of the book like, is this possible? How could that be? So I made a reference to somebody, I don't know, moistening his lips with a sponge or something. So it kind of solved that problem of sending the reader out of the book. And that's legit. Yeah, mm -hmm. but that's not changing your character's motivation. No, not at all. No. No, you're a writer. You can tell if an edit makes sense or doesn't make sense. And you always have really the ultimate voice there. And usually they'll listen to you if they come up with something that really isn't correct. Well, thank you. Well, thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House author series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories. <laughs>